Good evening. There we go. Let me begin with a question as you're turning in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And the question is this. What does it mean to be spiritual? What does it mean when we say somebody is really spiritual? Do we mean that they have a lot of Bible verses memorized? Do we think that they're especially wise and discerning? Maybe we mean by spiritual somebody that's especially interested in or sensitive to mystical things. They're always talking about spirits and demons. Or perhaps when we think somebody is super spiritual, we think of someone that is so concerned with holiness that they cease to be able to laugh or to be happy lest they get too close to sin. Some people think for them to be spiritual equates to a sort of stoic solemnity, a perpetual glumness, a furrowed brow as the expression of what it means to be spiritual. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 12 tonight, and we'll see how Paul begins to answer that question. It's been a few weeks since we were in 1 Corinthians, but if you'll remember, Paul is in this section of the letter addressing specific questions that the Corinthian believers had written to him about. They raised questions related to marriage and singleness, which Paul addressed in chapter 7. Questions about food offered to idols in chapters 8 through 10. And now, 12 through 14, Paul is addressing the nature and role of the spiritual gifts and how the Spirit works in and among the body of Christ. What are the spiritual gifts? Who should have them? How should they be used? These are all questions that Paul will seek to address with this church. Let's begin by reading our text. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 11 but we'll only get through the first three verses tonight. Here's God's word for us this evening. Now concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can ever say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each individually as He wills. This is God's Word for us tonight. Let's pray. Father, we ask that your Spirit would be with us, that he would open our eyes to see the truth of Scripture, that he would help us to humbly receive the words found therein, to apply it rightly to our hearts. Build up our body, Lord, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Paul begins this section of Scripture with the simple introduction, now concerning spiritual gifts. The word now is introducing that he's explaining to us he's moving to a new topic 
And the actual word there in Greek is just spiritual, the pneumaticon, concerning the spiritual. But I think the translators rightly added the implied word gifts based on the context of the rest of the chapter, which highlights the variety and utility of the various gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now concerning the spiritual gifts, brothers or brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant. This kind of phrase appears many times in Paul's letters. For example, Romans 1.13, he says, I don't want you to be unaware. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians 1.8, 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Paul knows that ignorance of God's truth leads to all manner of problems. Ignorance of the Lord's doctrine makes us susceptible to error, vulnerable to deception, and spiritual gullibility is no virtue. In fact, it's the opposite of mature faith. Immaturity, as James reminds us, is to be tossed about to and fro on every wave of doctrine, unable to discern the truth and to cling tightly to it. We're instead called to be fixed, to be stable, so much so that the church is called the pillar and buttress of truth, 1 Timothy Timothy 3.15. And the church of God cannot be the pillar of truth if it remains ignorant. And so in some, we must know if we are to grow. And Paul knew this. That's why he doesn't want them to lack any knowledge. But look at verse 2 and see what he wants them to know. He says, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Paul reminds them of their past, of their lives prior to coming to faith in Christ. You know when you were pagans, or when you were Gentiles, we could translate it. He's doing what he did earlier in this letter by bringing up their past personal history in order to prompt a present spiritual lesson. Remember back to chapter 1, Paul says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of noble birth. He's saying, remember back before you were a Christian, you weren't anything special. In fact, you were weak in the eyes of the world, and yet God chose the weak things of this world to shame the wise so that He would get all the glory. Paul likes to use their past to teach them a present lesson. You know that when you were a pagan, you were led astray. I think it would be helpful here to spend a little bit of time explaining the religious setting of their day. Understanding the milieu of ancient Corinth will help us understand what's going on within their congregation and without, outside of their walls, and help us better understand why Paul addresses some of the things he does. These Corinthian believers largely came out of a pagan, Greek, polytheistic religion. They had a whole bunch of gods from which they could choose. And the Greek and Roman religions of their day are part of a class of religions called the mystery religions. These were any of a variety of cults and practices that were offered to give people religious experiences. These mystery religions are the result of what happens when mankind rejects the revelation of God. When God's word is rejected, you don't inevitably end up worshiping a God. You will inevitably end up worshiping a God of your own fabrication. That's the danger of false religion. Human beings are inherently worshipful creatures. We were made to worship, and we, when we reject the true God, we don't become atheistic. Rather, we reject the true God and replace Him with a false one. And that's what happened with these mystery religions. And specifically, we can note three different characteristics 
that seemed to coalesce around these mystery religions from which the Corinthian believers had been saved. Three traits that often manifest themselves in false religions. And as I work through them, ask yourself if any of these are present in our modern society. First, false religions like to elevate feeling over fact. False religions like to elevate feeling over fact. Or we might say that they make experience the primary determiner of what is true. Now, these mystery religions of their day had all sorts of festivals and ceremonies which worked in part to stir their affections, to raise their feelings. We might say to help them have a religious experience, whether it was the incredible architecture of their day, like the Acropolis or the Temple of Apollo in Corinth, They had all kinds of unbelievably impressive structures meant to titillate the senses and stir their feelings. You add into that portions of the rituals which appealed to the human appetites. And it was no wonder that these religions were so popular. They had huge festivals, monster feasts, enormous reserves of wine, all for the purpose of dulling the senses and contributing to their worship experience. That doesn't even mention the viler aspects of their worship, which employed the services of temple prostitutes in the worship service of their pagan gods. All manner of behavior which isn't fit to be uttered in a setting like this. And the cumulative effect of all of these factors left the worshiper with this impression. If such worship experience makes me feel this way, it must be true. You see, that's the formula for determining what is true. How does it make me feel? You can see the deceptive problem here, can't you? And do you see how much of a problem it would be if it entered into the church, both in Corinth and in Montgomery? And here's the nub of the problem. If my feelings are the ultimate arbiter of what is true, and then I don't feel a particular way, then it must not be true anymore. If I don't get a warm and fuzzy feeling, if I don't have a burning in my heart, if I don't have an ecstatic utterance, if I don't speak in tongues, then I must not be spiritual. That's a problem. And it was dividing the Corinthian church, and it divides churches today. People walk out of churches all the time, and they say things like, I just just didn't feel it today. Worship didn't move me. Let's go to another church. And they think their feelings are sufficient alone to determine what makes a church genuinely spiritual or not. But that's a major problem. We would all admit, I think, that our feelings can be fickle. Some days we wake up and the sun is bright, the skies are clear, work goes great, your marriage is great, the kids are well behaved, you feel wonderful, so life is great. The very next day, you can wake up on the wrong side of the bed, the weather is nasty, your spouse seems cold to you, your job is unfulfilling, indeed irritating, your kids are at each other's throats. How do you feel in that moment? You feel like walking away, throwing in the towel. You just want to escape. If feelings alone determine what is true, then the moment my feelings, in that moment, my feelings have determined, well, my, my, my wife must not really love me. I don't feel loved by her. My job is useless. I don't see anything. I feel useless. 
and our feelings have led us astray. Our feelings cannot be the arbiter of truth because they are fallible and they are fickle. That means that feelings alone aren't sufficient to demonstrate maturity. Feelings alone cannot verify spirituality either. They are not the sure mark of spiritual gifting. Second, not only do false religions elevate or tend to elevate feeling over fact, they also elevate sensuality over sobriety. False religions elevate sensuality over sobriety. As I mentioned earlier, these mystery religions of the day employed sensual activity as part of the official cultic practice. They would use mind-altering substances as part of the worship ceremony. They would engage in all manner of wicked debauchery, all under the banner of worship. They would even work themselves up into a frenzy. And this religion was characterized by bizarre behavior, ecstatic performances, impulsive conduct. In short, it promoted anything and everything that could mimic and pervert true godliness and true worship. It promoted sensuality rather than godly chastity. It promoted drunkenness rather than sobriety. It promoted ecstatic outbursts rather than self-control and temperance. It promoted the indulgence of the appetites. And such religious experiences are not hard to find today, are they? You go to Bourbon Street in New Orleans, you go to the Strip in Las Vegas, you go to some seedy gentleman's club out on Mobile Highway, the same temptations, the same kind of worship are present in Corinth, just like they are today. But these religions didn't just promote experience over truth and sensuality over sobriety. Third, they also elevated the flashy over the faithful. False religions like to elevate the flashy over the faithful. In other words, if it is impressive, it must be genuine. All that glitters is gold, we might say. If somebody has impressive gifts, if they are worked up into a religious frenzy induced by ecstasy and intensity whereby they make a prophetic production and have all manner of visions and hallucinations and out-of-body experiences and bizarre vocalizations, if all that's happening at the temple, then that must be true. That must be the mark of true spirituality. And this was the culture in which they were all raised. The gifted, the flashy, the special, those are the ones with true value. Those are the ones that the gods really bless. Those are the ones that make a contribution. And so if you grew up in a world like that, don't you think you'd bring some baggage with you when you got saved and came into the church? If you were raised to think that the bizarre and the ecstatic were markers of true spiritual power, don't you think you'd be tempted to think the same thing in the church of God? And that's what's happening, as we'll see. Those with the gifts of tongue and prophecy were treated as more spiritually mature, more gifted than everybody else. They were better. They were more godly. They were superior. They were worthy of more honor. It was dividing the body. The same thing happens in the church today. If you've spent any time in the charismatic wing of evangelicalism, or if you've turned on the TV and watched half of the televangelists, 
You know, there's a whole segment of people who equate flashy spiritual gifting with spiritual maturity. Some will even tell you straight up, if you haven't spoken in tongues, you don't even have the Spirit. Therefore, you must not be saved. They're falling into the same trap as the Corinthian believers, elevating flashy spiritual giftings above all the rest and dividing the one body of Christ. That's one of the main issues that Paul will seek to address in the coming verses, which we'll get to, Lord willing, in the next few weeks. But I think it's important for us to be aware, to be on guard against these temptations which are present in some form in all the false religions. We mustn't elevate feelings over truth. We're called rather to worship in the Spirit and the truth. We must never let sensuality dominate over sobriety. We're called to glorify God in our bodies, as Paul says in chapter 6 of this book. The body is not meant for immorality, he says, but the Lord, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And speaking of body, we're meant to protect the unity of the body of Christ, not to elevate the flashiness of my particular giftings over faithfulness in other areas. That's a perennial temptation. We can't let pride inflate us to think that my gifts are better than those that those other people have. They all come from the same Spirit. They're all given according to the fullness of the wisdom of God and all come from grace. So who are we to boast? And so the question for us is this, if these marks of pagan religion are accurate and they're the opposite of how we ought to behave, then how often are we tempted to behave just like the Corinthians and measure spirituality according to a flawed standard? Are we tempted to elevate our feelings to a position of primacy over truth? Sometimes we do that. We let our feelings tell us that we're guilty when we're actually forgiven in Christ. Or we let our feelings tell us that someone else is a guilty sinner when in fact they haven't actually sinned, they've just done something we disagree with. Do we let our feelings drive the train towards bitterness rather than reminding ourselves of the truth of grace in Christ? Or how about sensuality? Have we justified some little pocket of sin in our life because we worked extra hard in some other area? We've earned a little fun. Satan likes that lie. You deserve it. Have we acted like the Corinthians and let a little bit of liberty run amok and land us into full-blown enslavement, forfeiting our sobriety? Or how about flashy gifts? Are we tempted to think that the gifts that put us up front must be more important? That singing and teaching and leading must be more important than all the lame gifts of service, compassion, mercy, working in the nursery with the kids, praying alone quietly where nobody will ever see, devaluing the other gifts. Satan loves that. Just because He loves the lie that just because our gift isn't exercised in front for everyone to see, we must be less valuable and less spiritual. Each of these areas is still a temptation for us today, and where we've seen that we've fallen short, we, we need to repent. But more than that, we need to remember 
the Christ who sent his spirit in the first place. Christ never elevated his feelings over truth. In fact, he submitted his feelings to what he knew was true. You thought about that? Father, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Father, I don't feel happy about this. In fact, in his humanity, he absolutely dreaded it to the point of sweating blood. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Willingly submitted to the truth of God. And he never yielded to the temptation to permit sensuality at the expense of his sobriety. He was accused of being friends of gluttons and drunkards, but none of those accusations could stick. He was the spotless lamb, sinless in every way, never a slave to his passions, never bound by his appetites. That makes him the perfect substitute for me and you, who were too often led astray by sensual temptations. And Christ never elevated the flashy above the faithful. In fact, he taught that quiet, humble service performed with childlike faith demonstrates true Christian maturity. He's the one that taught that the first will be last. The last will be first. And taught that in a world that loves to spotlight the flashy. That calculus of maturity means that in heaven, most of the people serving in the spotlight, they're not going to be up front. It's going to be the people who served in the background, praying diligently, encouraging faithfully, serving peacefully. Those that seem to be the most dispensable, they will be first. Christ is our perfect substitute who died for all of us who fail to these temptations. And for those of us who have trusted in Him, continue to lean into Him Don't elevate the gifts of the Spirit over the giver of the Spirit. Don't pursue the gifting and forget the giver. Remember when you were pagans and remember from what you have been saved. Recall the words from chapter 6 of this letter. And such were some of you were, but you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You've been made holy and you've been gifted the Spirit. And if you haven't trusted in Christ, then I want you to hear again of your condition. You're led astray by a mute idol, Paul would say. It may not be a little statue. You may not be worshiping at the temple of Apollo, but you are led astray by a mute idol nonetheless. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ. Outside of Christ, you're blind. Blinded by worship. Worship of money. Worship of comfort. Worship of reputation. Worship of whatever else. And to you, I would say, read the words of Jesus in Scripture. Listen to what he says. Consider his argument. See what Jesus does. See, Jesus is the true light. And he can cast out darkness, even darkness that clouds your mind. He's the light of the world, he says. 
And anyone in the world who would come to him in faith will see their hearts changed and their eyes opened. Consider this, Jesus. Ask him your questions. Test Jesus. Christianity is afraid of no investigation. In fact, it invites it. Trust in this Jesus, and you too can have him as your Lord and Savior. And be free of these pagan religions of darkness and of sensuality. Let's move on to verse 3, where Paul further refines our understanding of what the truly spiritual person looks like. What a truly spiritually gifted brother or sister would look like. And he gives us two different markers, two different touchstones, two different layers perhaps by which we may help to determine true spirituality. And I can summarize them like this. Number one, true spirituality never contradicts God's Word. True spirituality never contradicts God's Word. And number two, true spirituality results in holiness. A truly spiritual person will be growing in holiness. Let's look at the first part of verse 3. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. That's a strange thing. There's nobody operating according to the ministry of the Holy Spirit would ever say that Jesus is cursed, accursed, anathema, condemned. It seems plausible that somebody in Corinth had uttered such a phrase. And you could easily sketch out the logic, flawed logic. Deuteronomy says that anybody that hangs on a tree is cursed. Jesus hung on a tree, therefore he's anathema. He's condemned to hell. He's cursed. And if something like that, some kind of seemingly plausible logic, is uttered in the middle of a prophetic pronouncement with a flashy spiritual tongue, that might have the ability to mislead believers down a very problematic path. Well, let's use our reasoning for a moment. Would you ever suppose that the Holy Spirit the third person of the Trinity who's sent by the Father and the Son, would that Spirit gift and lead someone to a prophetic conclusion that undermines the Son's glory? Of course not. Jesus Himself said that He would send the Spirit and that the Spirit's job would be to testify about Jesus, about His identity, about His work. John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. It's very simple. Christ's Spirit never leads someone away from Christ. Never leads someone away from Jesus. Christ's Spirit never undermines the Son. The Spirit's job is to highlight the Son and all of His work and all of His glory. And it doesn't matter what somebody says or what title they have or how adamant they are about the spiritual nature of their message and the divine origin of their prophecy. If they don't point people back to the Jesus of Scriptures, they're not led by the Holy Spirit. They may be inspired, but it's not the Holy Spirit that's inspired them. And so the first litmus test of the legitimacy of spiritual gifts and of revelation is whether that revelation elevates the Christ of Scripture or whether it detracts from Christ's glory. And if it's the former, then we consider it. 
If it's the latter, we reject it. Additionally, and related to the previous point, we can reason further from this text that the Holy Spirit is never going to lead a person to confess anything that contradicts Holy Scripture. The Holy Spirit never leads believers into contradiction. If He inspired and revealed God's Word to the people of God throughout the ages, He's not going to contradict Himself. He's the Spirit of truth. It's not the spirit of contradiction. The Spirit shares the same divine essence as the Father and the Son, the same wisdom, the same power, and therefore no part of His ministry would be out of alignment, would be contradictory. No error, no oversight in His work. Thus, genuine spiritual gifts and genuine Spirit-inspired prophecy would necessarily align with, would comport with previous Revelation. Spiritual prophecy, if it's genuinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, will necessarily confirm itself rather than contradict itself. So what does that mean for us? It means that when somebody says they have a word from God, and that that word that they tell you doesn't align with Scripture, we know what to do with their word. We toss it out. We ignore it. We might even rebuke that person right then and there. I don't know if you've ever had somebody do that to you. I've had people do that to me. They walk up and they say, I've got a word for you from God. They don't open their Bible. They tell me that I must go and do this or do that. Or I must give them a gift of a certain amount. Or that Jesus, if you were really loving like Jesus, then you would do this. Go buy them a hotel room for the night or something. I'm all for being generous to those in need, but when somebody tells me that the Holy Spirit of God demands that I give them money right then and there, I draw the line. The Spirit's ministry in and through the spiritual gifts is to elevate Christ and confirm prior revelation, not to manipulate or cajole people into action. Now let's look at the second part of this verse and I'll begin to wrap this up. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. No one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Is is Paul saying that it's impossible to even utter those words without being filled with the Holy Spirit? I don't think so. Anyone can mouth the words, and yet the Spirit be far from them. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus interacting with demons, and those demons recognize Jesus' identity and refer to Him as Lord. Mark 1, Acts 16. Paul's given us another litmus test here, another benchmark for comparison. A person genuinely led by the Spirit, will proclaim that Jesus is Lord from a heart of faith. Again, the problem is not the recognition of Jesus' Lordship, even the demons do that, but the reverence of it. It's not merely that someone intellectually agrees that Jesus is Lord, but that they believe it. It's a compliment to the previous litmus test. Just like before, a person who calls Jesus accursed 
demonstrates that they're not led by the Spirit. So too, those who proclaim that Jesus is Lord with their lips and with their lives demonstrates that they are really led by the Spirit. So we have two options. We can confess that Jesus is Lord and we can live accordingly. Or we can refuse to confess it and rebel against His Lordship. Without that confession that Jesus is Lord and submission to it, all of our acts of service, however spiritual they may seem, however noble they may be, will be in vain. Some people may call Jesus Lord and even perform valuable tasks in His service. But if they're not filled with God's Spirit and therefore failing to do the Father's will, Jesus dismisses them. He says, be gone from me, you workers of iniquity. Matthew 7, 23. But if we confess that Jesus is Lord, which is one of the oldest creeds in all of Christendom, then we know we're led by the Spirit, and the Spirit has worked in our heart to grant us understanding and faith. In fact, Paul makes a promise in Romans 10 that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a sure and certain promise. That's good news. Belief and confession. Not how perfect we are, not how spiritual we are, not how mature we seem, not how sinless we may strive to be, not how gifted we are. Simple faith. That's what makes a person spiritual. And it's by the work of the Holy Spirit that we have the privilege of partaking in a spiritual meal this evening. If you confess that Jesus is Lord, and you're devoted to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship within the church and the breaking of bread and prayers, then we invite you to join us at the table of our Lord to partake in this spiritual meal by faith and thereby proclaim that Jesus is Lord. But if you have not confessed Jesus as Lord, or if you're out of fellowship with the body of Christ, first and be reconciled to Him, then you may join us at the table. Let me pray. Father in heaven, we ask that You would grow us in holiness. That You would carve away the remaining bits of sin. That You would help us to not walk according to the flesh but to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit as He guides us into truth, as we reflect upon Your Word, we reflect upon Christ's sacrifice and the salvation we have therein. Use these elements to build up Your body, we ask. In Christ's name, amen. Table servants, please come.